here. We're grateful that so many of you are here with us this morning to worship God and to be with his people. Have you ever read a really bad book? A story that just doesn't go anywhere? You're, you're reading along, maybe you're a quarter of the way through, maybe you're, maybe you're halfway through, maybe, maybe you're like almost at the end, but it's just, it's just not coming together. Things are happening, people are having conversations, but goodness, what is the purpose of this? The author seems to have lost the plot. Maybe, maybe your friend recommended a TV show to you, and you started watching it, and you go, I don't, hey man, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I, I don't think it's funny, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You've got to get through that first season. The first season's no good. Uh, it gets better. It gets better, I promise. And you're like, but there's 10 seasons. <laughs> when does it get better? When does it start to make sense? Sometimes, life can feel like a story that's lost its plot. A series of events that repeat, but without purpose, without progress. This is the idea that the author of Ecclesiastes very bluntly and sometimes brutally uh, portrays for us. The author of Ecclesiastes says that everything is like a breath. It's empty. You can reach for it, but you, you can't hold it, and ultimately you're going to die, and you're not going to be able to take it with you. He looks back at the beginning of creation as if to say, look, you know, there used to be, a, there used to be purpose in things. God did something, and it was good. There was morning, there was evening, God did something, and it was good. There was something new, there was something good. There was a repetition, there was a purpose, and we've lost that. We've been discussing Ecclesiastes in our Digging Deeper series on, on Sunday mornings before the service. That happens at 9.15. Um, this morning's sermon is not from the book of Ecclesiastes. We are studying the book of Colossians right now, but what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23, is in many ways an answer to what the preacher in Ecclesiastes, what many of us have felt at some point in our lives, that we struggle to find and understand purpose. Things feel disconnected and incomplete. Let's look at, first, at, at Colossians chapter 1. Again, verses 15 to 23. This is what Paul says. He, Jesus, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. The Colossians, this was a church that Paul hadn't planted himself, and he didn't know them well yet. But he writes in this letter, and as Jamie introduced to us last week, Paul is, is full of joy and thankfulness for this church. And he talks about how he always prays for them and how he prays for them. He prays for their, for their growth, for their maturity, for the depth of their knowledge and their joy in knowing God. That he has joy in knowing that they know God, that they've received the gospel. But as he continues on in the letter, he's, gonna, he's going to include warnings for them, corrections for them, strong advice on how Christians should live their lives. This is it's very, very typical of how Paul writes. Very, very direct, very specific. Do this, believe this, understand this. It's, it's very direct, uh, very, um, very straightforward. And, and we, we, we seem to appreciate that. People want to know, hey, what's, what's the point of this? Tell me what to do. Tell me what to think. Get it out. Spit it out, preacher. Don't go on for too long like you did last time. Tell me, what's the point? We're just, yeah, give me the point. Tell me what I need to do. But Paul doesn't get there yet. He started with prayer, and now he's moved into this, which... When we read it, it's you're like, man, well, this is just, this is a lot of theology, right? This is all these theological statements. It's Jesus is this, Jesus is that, Jesus is, is, is preeminent. Um, but what's happening in this passage is, and this is clearly, I think, lost. I, I looked at a bunch of different translations. I don't think any of them are able to capture this. But what is happening, what this passage is, verses 15 through 20, is a hymn. It's, it's a poem, a song. Paul isn't just elaborating on theological truths. He is trying to convey beauty. He's trying to convey more than simply knowledge and understanding because he's going to get through all of those things later. He, why, why is Paul concerned that to, that Jesus is, that all things were created through him and for him, that he is the head of the church, that he is the fullness of God. All of those things are going to come back out throughout this letter as Paul corrects and instructs and guides the Colossians. But right now, he's content to put them all together, not for the sake of teaching and direction, but for the sake of beauty and worship. We're, we're eager to get to the point, eager to get to the action. But we cannot miss 
we cannot miss the beauty and the awesomeness that is the God we worship. This, this morning, as we reflect on this passage, we're talking about beauty and worship. And so, the first thing that I want to point out to you is how this passage responds to the idea that I, that I shared a moment ago from Ecclesiastes. Because I think at some point, what we all must have experienced that. You have done something that did not work out. You have planted a seed that did not grow. You have sought a relationship that went nowhere or went badly. We have experienced failure. We have put effort into things and gotten nothing back. And it can seem, when you have those kinds of experiences over and over again, that, well, really, there is no point in putting effort into anything. Nothing is, nothing is consistent. Nothing is connected. But Paul tells us that, in fact, all things, everything, holds together in Jesus. Going back to creation, right? In creation, there is a rhythm, a repetition. There's morning and there's evening. God speaks. There's something new and something good. And when Adam and Eve sin, that cycle of goodness and growth is broken. And what we experience now is the cycle of nothingness. We do the same things, but it seems like they don't go anywhere. We struggle. And that's not the way it was supposed to be. And so the preacher in Ecclesiastes is, is very, very pessimistic, somewhat hopeless, because it seems that God has left us alone in this place where we just repeat and don't gain. But Paul corrects us. No, we, we are separated from God. We do experience futility. We do struggle. And yet, that's not the extent of it. All things were not created for us or by us. They were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. What Paul is not saying is that Jesus is the first created being. No, by him all things were created. He's saying that he is the firstborn. He is the one with the most authority. The firstborn in an ancient family would have received everything from their father, the entirety of his inheritance, equal to his father. That's who Jesus is. You say, oh, that's well and good. But Jesus is not just God again. He is, to us, the image of God. The image of the invisible God means he is something that we can see and know. He is a person. So when we're thinking about beauty and theology and all of these things, thinking about truth or, or the right and the wrong, we're not, we're not ideologues. We're not people with a good idea. We're people who know a person. That person is Jesus, and beauty and truth and righteousness are in him. And so we don't worship beauty. We don't seek beauty. We worship Jesus. We seek Jesus, and we find him to be the most beautiful thing of all, the most righteous thing of all, the truest thing of all. Truth 
beauty are a person. As we read earlier, a, a broken and a contrite spirit, God does not condemn. And the beauty and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, who has all of this great authority, everything is created by him and for him, is the firstborn from the dead. From the dead. Because that's, that's, that's the preacher of Ecclesiastes' great fear, is that I'm going to put in all of this work and all this effort into my life. I could have a family, I could have palaces, I could have everything I want, and then I'm going to die. And what is it all for? And so Jesus enters into that situation. He doesn't just say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Everything is great. Everything is perfect. Everything is good. He says, no, everything is, everything is broken. I'm going to make it right. And so Jesus loves and cares for a broken and a contrite spirit by becoming and being broken and contrite. He all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, both when he was a child, an infant in a manger, and when he was a man tortured and dying on a cross. Beauty and truth are a person, a baby in a manger, a man on a cross, and, the, and all the more, a man who rose from the dead. And when Paul says firstborn, he means the first of many. He's going to go on later, right, to say, you have this hope if you, if you do not shift from the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel, we've said this before, we'll say this again, it's going to come up a lot in Colossians. The hope is that we are going to be resurrected from the dead. That Jesus came, he died just the way we will, and yet... That was not the end. That was, his life was not in vain. It was not empty. It was not purposeless. He rose again, and so will we. And so through all of this, verse 20, he has reconciled us to himself. And not just us, but all things, whether, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so in everything, from the exceptional to the mundane, we can find purpose and meaning in Christ. Paul, again, he wants us to see the beauty of this. And he's going to expound this. He wrote a whole book, right, a whole letter expounding these things. But here, he's lumped it all together so that we would see it and appreciate its beauty. Here's what a quote up on, on beauty from Dane Ortland's recent book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I, I, I strongly recommend this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Here's what he has to say about beauty. Perhaps beauty is not a category that comes naturally to mind when we think about Christ. Maybe we think of God and Christ in terms of truth not beauty. But the whole reason we care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty.
beauty. Just as the whole reason we care about effective focal lenses on a camera is to capture with precision the beauty we photograph. Paul is not content to tell us what is true, what we should do, and what is right. He is not content to convey information. He wants us to see, know, and experience the beauty of God in Christ. And a letter and a sermon is never going to be adequate enough to capture all of that. This is why we sing. This is why we read. There's something, there's something uh, undeniable about the beauty of music. Sometimes I, I'm tempted to uh, resist this. I, I've found, especially in recent years, that I am strongly affected by music, especially the soundtracks of movies and TV shows, <laughs> even in scenes where, where the, the character is not necessarily going through that emotional of a moment. I don't think the writers or director intended to make me cry, but the music swells I have this visceral reaction to it. It's beautiful, and it affects me. It doesn't just, it doesn't affect my thoughts. It, it affects my heart, my, my soul. It, it, it breaks through to something I, I can't describe, and I, I respond to it. You know, beauty is transcendent. It can't be captured in words, it has to be seen and experienced and known. That, that's why a worship service is not just a sermon or just a reading from the scripture. No, we have to sing. We have to hear each other. We have to see each other. We have to, to bring our, our children together and dedicate them to the Lord. What we have done today is not simply the right thing to do. It is a beautiful thing to do. It is not an act of righteousness alone. It is an act of love. Parents who, have, who love their children and have committed them to God, and all of us who, who heard the question and responded, we do, we have committed to be a people who care and love, care about and love one another. The community that we share together is beautiful. It can be beautiful. And that is what he says in, in verse 18, that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He has brought all of us together in himself and reconciled us. If Jesus is beautiful, if Jesus died and rose again, then we we are beautiful as well. Can you, <laughs> when you think of your Christian brothers and sisters, do you think about how beautiful they are? We have such a, such a frustratingly narrow understanding of beauty, right? Uh, beauty, is, beauty is feminine or, or beauty is, you know, beauty is art, beauty is you know, very restricted, in, in Christ, beauty is everywhere and in everything and in everyone. C.S. Lewis captured this really potently 
when he talks about who human beings are and can be. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other in one direction or the other. It is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, these are no ordinary, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Paul doesn't include in this particular passage the threat of judgment or separation from God. He's focused on the beauty that Christians who know him have, right? But that is the hope of the gospel is that we will rise again from the dead like Christ and be saved, yes, reconciled to God, saved from a terrible and horrific fate of eternal separation and pain the cycle of repeated futility and endlessness that we are tempted to believe in now is the reality that we are warned about. This is why Paul says, if you do not stray, do not shift. Because there are many false teachings in Colossians, in the, in the, to, in the Colossian church, and he wants to potently warn them against them. Those are for the coming passages. But think about that, right? Every person you meet, every brother and sister in Christ in this room, there are no mortal people. There are no unimportant and insignificant people. We are beautiful in Christ, more so than we can imagine or know. He has brought us in to his beauty, holiness, and goodness. We must see that in each other, and we must know that it is a gift he has given to us. We are beautiful in his sight, and we can be beautiful to one another. All of this comes together in worship. Yes, there is a lot of practical implications from these teachings and this theology about Jesus. Paul is going to make those implications in the passages to follow, and so I'm not going to talk about them right now. I want us to think about beauty and about worship. One of the most, uh, one of the, the songs that has uh, stuck with me as I've been studying this passage, it's, it's not the one we're about to sing, but it is, it, it captures this idea, right? Because again, there's something about singing. I, I don't sing to anyone but to God. I, I'm not a musical person. That's probably true of most of us. And, and singing is awkward and a little bit strange to me, and yet 
it is beautiful because he, he is the only one who really deserves it. Here, here's a song, a hymn, Thou Lovely Source of True Delight. Thou lovely source of true delight, whom I unseen adore, unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I may love thee more. Thy glory over creation shines, but in thy sacred word I read in fairer, brighter lines my bleeding, dying Lord. Tis here, whene'er my comfort droops, and sins and sorrows rise. Thy love, with cheerful beams of hope, my fainting heart supplies. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, O come with blissful ray, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love but the full glories of thy face are only known above. Our lives, our worship, our actions, our, our testimony can and must be beautiful because the God we worship in Christ is infinitely beautiful. And he gives us, shares with us his beauty. As we reflect on this passage, as you think about your life in Christ, as you think about your life apart from Christ, if this beauty is alien and unknown to you, it can be yours. And for those who it is, it, it, it is yours. Beauty, transcendent, amazing, overwhelming. As we continue to sing and worship, I would encourage you this week to reflect on the beauty of Christ. Is it strange to you to think that way? How can you capture that? What is most beautiful to you in life? Is it, is it music? Is it art? Is it nature? Is it, is it your child? Your family? How does that beauty come from God? How can you worship and see him in it? Where has God put beauty in your life? And where do you lack it? Because we are all, yes, confronted by pain and hurt. In pain and hurt, may you turn to God and ask him not just to take away your pain, not just to forgive your sins, not just to change your circumstances, but to show you his beauty, his goodness, to bring you from despair into joy. This is the promise that we have, the opportunity that we have, because we have been reconciled to him. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. We have hope, resurrection from the dead, and the good news that we've heard and that we have believed. Let us worship, reflect on, and be transformed by the beautiful and awesome Savior, Jesus, that we know and worship this morning.
Let's pray together. God, I, words are inadequate to describe your beauty. The Lord, we ask that in some way this morning, each and every one of us would know your beauty and your goodness. It is vast enough that each one of us could experience it in a different, unique, and personal way. You are that good and that loving to do just that. So Lord, in whatever way, by whatever means, may we know and see your beauty. May we be transformed by it into the likeness of your Son so that we reflect it and see it in one another. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you please rise to...